We got then in the Adarum, Sayut and Inga, from your Frunnan, Uda Avalingas, Ellen Flemmerden. Off shield shaving, Sharon and Freyatum, Monigan, Megan, Mary, set off there. Aizon and Erlus, Sin and Erlus, Fairship, the Wells Fairship, Frunnan, Nidas, Frovery of Bad, Works on the Walkman, Worthman and Thar, Other Tim Aikuch, Dar Unsipendra. That was Gold Cooney. That's how Tolkien used to begin lots of his lectures. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mainly the ones uh, uh, on Beowulf over the years. Also his valedictory he began like that, declaiming the opening words of Beowulf in Old English. The translation that he gave for those first 11 lines of the poem uh, varied over time. We have verse versions, we have prose versions, and uh, only just earlier this year, um, his son Christopher uh, published the prose version that apparently Tolkien finished uh, in 1926, the year the family finally moved from Leeds to Oxford after he'd taken up the Rawlington and Bosworth chair of Anglo-Saxon the previous year. Tolkien's prose translation from that publication of earlier this year uh, goes as follows. Lo, the glory of the kings of the people of the Spear Danes in days of old we have heard tell how those princes did deeds of valour. Oft shield shaving, robbed the hosts of foemen, many peoples of the seats where they drank their mead, laid fear upon men. He who first was found forlorn, comfort for that he lived to know, mighty grew under heaven, throve in honour until all that dwelt nigh about over the sea where the whale rides must hearken to him and yield him tribute. A good king was he. His performances of Beowulf became legendary. We have a number of records from quite distinguished uh, Oxfordians of, of many different stripes. Uh, famously, W.H. Jordan wrote to Tolkien uh, himself and said, I don't think I ever told you what an unforgettable experience it was for me as an undergraduate hearing you recite Beowulf. The voice was the voice of Gandalf. Uh, you'll notice I tried not to channel Ian McKellen. For <laughs> listening to that would be Mordor. Uh, <laughs> J.I.M. Stewart, uh, Michael Innes, uh, the great crime writer, uh, another Oxford uh, um, um, fellow who um, ended up at Christchurch. Can you end up at Christchurch? Uh, said he could turn a lecture room into a mead hall of which he was the bard and we were his feasting guests. Uh, Michael Innes famously um, enshrined Tolkien in one of his own uh, books um, as the Anglo-Saxon scholar Professor J.B. Timbermill uh, who never quite got round to finishing books of Anglo-Saxon because he was so busy writing other things. What I've given you on the handout today is a distillation of several aspects of Tolkien's life, beginning uh, with um, his lectures. This is, as far as I can make out, a more or less complete list of the lectures that Tolkien gave while he was Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon. Uh, and it needs a little bit of glossing. Uh, um, as we've heard, he moved to Merton in 1945, but in fact they didn't uh, appoint a successor uh, to Tolkien until 1946, so for 1945 to 46, he continued giving the same lectures that he'd always given. Uh, again, in 1925, he hadn't quite finished his job at Leeds, where he was also a professor, so the first and last years that you've got here, he's actually teaching two jobs, which is quite remarkable. Tolkien is sometimes then described as, as being somehow a lazy uh, scholar because he didn't publish much uh, in the way of academic work, but if you look at his lecture load, it's really quite extraordinary, and not something that I think many people... Uh, now would care to undertake. Of the 21 years represented here, and you'll note that thanks to the joys of cut and paste, you don't have on the handout, I've missed a year, uh, Middlemas 35 to Trinity 36, but the conclusions that I'm going to make are, are, are basically the same and they hold. Uh, as I say, the first and last years are aberrant since he was double dipping. 
But there are only three years, as far as I can make out, 1930 to 31, 1932 to 33, 1939 to 1940, when you might think that people were preoccupied with other matters elsewhere. Those are the only three years when he did not teach Beowulf. He never took a year off, not even a term, although under current sabbatical rules, within those 21 years, he would have been entitled to take the equivalent of at least three years uh, or nine terms, and he did take time off when he became Merton Professor. Sabbaticals had kicked in. He wasn't averse to taking time off, but uh, as he wrote to his son, I never lectured on anything that I did not love, and he clearly enjoyed uh, what he was doing. He's regularly teaching twice as many hours as he's required to by stature, and often more than that, uh, close to three times. The notion of lazy Tolkien, a, a man who certainly published notably little, I guess, in his chosen field, but the bits that he published are perhaps the most important uh, texts uh, that we have, especially relating to Beowulf, I think can be uh, usefully exploded uh, simply by looking uh, at this list. What's also uh, interesting, and I try to do it by colour coding, is the extent to which not only did he lecture on what he's supposed to be lecturing in, if you like, Old and Middle English, this is the stuff in red, and you'll notice that the lectures changed. He didn't get into the same groove of translating the same things or teaching the same things in the same ways year in, year out. Philology, as we know, was a huge, uh, of huge importance to him. But I think in, uh, it's going to become a, a light motif or probably more of a heavy motif as we get towards the end. Uh, Old Norse was hugely important to him. Every year he taught some aspect of Old Norse or Old Icelandic and he taught it all the way up to 1941, Michaelmas 1941, if you note. There's something of a sea change. And after Michaelmas 1941, uh, he doesn't teach Old Norse anymore. This isn't because he lost interest or lost his love of Old Norse. It's simply because the university and their wisdom decided finally to appoint uh, a Vigfusson reader in Old Norse, uh, Gabriel Turville Peter, who was one of Tolkien's old stu own students. And that's how I interpret his last lecture on Old Norse in Michaelmas 41 which you'll notice is on the slightly offbeat topic. William Morris, the story of Sigurd and the fall of the Volsungs. He's indulging himself. It's his last crack at the, at the, the whip, it's his last kick at the can, and he wants to teach something that he's truly interested in uh, and something which has repercussions uh, for his own work. Otherwise, you'll see, he very, very scrupulously teaches Old English, Philology, and Old Norse, even when he doesn't have to. He varies his teaching... So that in certain, uh, there's a certain period when he's teaching an old English poem called Andreas at exactly the point when he's supervising uh, Kenneth Brooks who went on to produce the edition of Andreas. In other words, he's helping his students by, by teaching them as well as supervising them at the same time. He expresses an interest uh, in uh, editing and translating a poem called um, Eleanor uh, by Kinnewulf. He even writes to publishers saying, would you be interested in my translation of Eleanor? Uh, and they say, well, we would, but Kenneth Sison's already doing one, uh, at which point he drops it and doesn't seem to teach Eleanor much after that. Uh, as for Beowulf, again, this notion that the 1926 translation that appeared uh, this year is somehow something that he was not interested in having see the light of day is belied by the letters and the correspondence, where he's very keen early on to say, would you like a Beowulf? Would you like my translation of Beowulf? I have it. I've even got bits of it in verse. And the publishers say, of course, that would be great. And he says, oh, wait a minute. I'd need to do an introduction for that, and I'd need to uh, expand it in other ways. And it's almost certain that that's the material that ends up uh, at the beginning of another um, translation. So Beowulf is where we're going to begin, and Beowulf is where we're going to end. But I think the sheer breadth of what he's teaching is, I think, important. He rarely teaches prose. 
He's not interested in prose. The prose that he teaches are only the set texts and only then, almost you might say against his will, he's interested in words and verse. And that holds true not only for uh, Old English, but um, also for um, Old Norse. Now you'll see with the key here, I've got uh, red is Old English, blue is philology, and green is um, Icelandic. Uh, you'll notice I've left purple for Celtic. And I think Celtic is another area of Tolkien's expertise that's been much um, under, understated and certainly much um, underrated. There are a number of Tolkien's books that survive uh, here in Oxford. Uh, several of them, I think, extremely important. And before I go on to talk about some of the Celtic material, I want to mention uh, several of Tolkien's books that we have in the body. And Catherine Parker is here, who's in charge of all this material, uh, and very kindly uh, gave me access to uh, Tolkien's own editions of Beowulf um, earlier this week. And they're a fascinating treasure, tre not treasure trove. Uh, they're not counted as books. They're counted among the archive materials. They're heavily, heavily annotated. And there are three different uh, versions of them uh, and three different editions. And if you look on page four of your handout, we have 44 books by Tolkien, very heavily annotated, a lot of them, very interestingly, his Latin books. Uh, he still kept an interest in uh, Latin and Greek. He started off as a classical scholar. Uh, and for him, that was the back backbone uh, of what he did. But his three editions of Beowulf, you couldn't ask for three more telling editions of Beowulf to have. Moritz Heiner edition is absolutely standard, the height of German scholarship at the time. Um, Tolkien uh, has an interleaved version uh, that comes from uh, a man called Pym, uh, that obviously he bought fairly early on, I would say, uh, in his career. Uh, Pym annotated it, and Tolkien occasionally annotates Pym's annotations in the foolish boy kind of uh, manner. The most important one, I think, is uh, this next one, 16.2, where for anybody seriously reading Beowulf uh, in the uh, early years of the, of the 20th century, Holthausen was it. Holthausen, uh, in a way, uh, uh, one of those crazy... I'm going to say 19th century Germans, but a hangover from crazy 19th century German scholarship where uh, all we can deduce basically is it must have rained a lot because 19th century German scholars, particularly of Beowulf, tended to just collect information, but they rarely analysed it. So you have long lists of, for example, um, alliterations in Beowulf uh, beginning with F, uh, for example. Tolkien plays, plays into this himself, but he goes a stage further. He takes some of the more wild uh, emendations of people like Holthausen and he comments on them. Now, what he's done here in this three volumes bound as one is he's got Holthausen volume one from 1912, Holthausen, uh, the notes, if you like, and the vocab uh, from 1913. And then really interestingly, and I think importantly, he's bound together with it uh, a book by Alfred Holder from 1895, which is a simply extraordinary book where... Holder goes through the Beowulf manuscript and tries to present a book in modern English type that recreates the foliation and the lineation of the Beowulf manuscript. <coughs> this was a standard text until Zupitzer produced collotypes uh, later on where you could actually use the manuscript. And it shows that Tolkien at this early stage, uh, relatively speaking, of his career, was going back to the manuscripts, back to the manuscripts. And all of his suggested conjectural emendations fit the context of the manuscripts. Tolkien is often lambasted for rewriting bits of Old English that he didn't like, and certainly he did that. Uh, but he always did it with an eye to what would fit the available space. He's not just making it up um, out of thin air. 
Finally, uh, we've got Tolkien's Kleber, which I think is his main teaching text. It's rubbed out, it's color, covered in uh, uh, lots and lots of material, which some of which you can barely read, or I can barely read at least. It's got lots of notes, obelisks, double obelisks, uh, other signals, which I guess key into um, uh, lecture notes that he would have used. And it's as close as we can get to how Tolkien would have presented his material in a classroom context. If we move to the English Faculty Library, um, they've got about 280 items of what is known as Tolkien's Celtic Library. This is a misnomer for a number of reasons. Uh, I've given you some selections here. There's some off-prints. They're together labelled, as I say, as Celtic Library. The acquisition records are patchy, but it seems that at least some and possibly most of the books were donated by Tolkien after he left Merton in 1959, uh, when uh, he left his rooms in Merton and, as a lot of retiring academics, had to find space for all his books. He sold off some. He donated some. Um, the interesting thing is what he chose to present um, at this point. Now, I have to say, not all the books could have come in at that point, because although there's 280 of them, uh, there's about a dozen that are from after 1959, and the latest of them is in fact 1922, which is the year, uh, sorry, 1972, the year before he died. But they include some very early treasures. The earliest book is a book of Faroese poetry, that tells you something, from 1822. And about more than 200 of the 280 date from 1926 or earlier. In other words, from before he was appointed to the chair, he was elected to the chair in 1925. He had that year commuting between here and Leeds, and in 26 he probably took up the chair. And in 26 he also started to collect books by his predecessors in the um, Rawlinson and Bosworth chair as an act of piety, in a sense. And he has a keen sense of his own position within the history uh, of the subject. Uh, you can see that, I think, very clearly if you look at the first and last items um, that I've given you here. Uh, Karl Lueck, again, a very standard uh, um, text, uh, and he's got a copy that's been autographed by the author. So this is like, uh, his, these are his pop stars, if you like. He's collecting signatures. And then rather touchingly, uh, also in the collection is the last item on my list on page five. He also collects a photograph of Lewick, right? As if this is, you know, Harry Styles or something. Uh, and he's got a picture of Lewick and it says, it's just, it's just a German man in front of a micro microphone, but Tolkien annotates it and he says he's reading the first lines of Beowulf. It's not clear how you'd know that from the photograph, but uh, in Tolkien's mind, that's what he was doing. He collects books by Joseph Wright. This is the second one uh, on that list in blue. Um, Norse books, very importantly, he was totally in touch with the major Norse figures, major Norse, major Icelandic scholars of his day. Uh, he's got books inscribed to him by uh, Gudni Jonsson, uh, VC20, Sigurd the Nordal, uh, VC29, whose granddaughter, in fact, came here to, 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 to do her DPhil in Oxford. That's when I met her a long time ago. Uh, and is now currently the head of the Manuscripts Institute um, uh, in Reykjavik. It's the Irish books um, I'm interested in because this is a particularly romantic part of his life. He buys the best Irish books you can buy. Tornison, Handbook des Alt-Irischen uh, volume uh, one and uh, VC 89 should be volume two. I apologize for that. Uh, decoratively autographed and inscribed Exeter College, February 1914. And then more interestingly, and I, I tried to reproduce it and I took a photograph, but it doesn't reproduce well, so I'm going to have to rely on Catherine. But that's volume two. In volume two, he signs it J.R.R. Tolkien, Exeter College, Oxford, February 1914. But then he writes, as I say here, AMDG. E-M-B. A-M-D-G is 
the motto of the Jesuit Fathers, Ad Maiorem Dei Gloriam. It's a signal, if you like, it's a gesture towards his, um, his guardian, Francis Xavier Morgan. And in fact, Francis Xavier, the earlier Francis Xavier, after whom Morgan was named, uh, is one of the first seven uh, Jesuits to found the order. EMB, those are the initials of the woman that became his wife. Uh, exactly one year after, uh, in February 1913, uh, they'd become engaged. Father Morgan had said, don't, uh, when he found out of their affair, uh, said, I forbid you to have contact with her until you're of age, and Tolkien didn't see her for three years. EMB, AMDG, these are the two most powerful influences uh, in his early life and loves, and uh, I hope Catherine will agree with me that the in Tolkien's calligraphy, the M of EMB, Edith Mary Bratt, is very clearly in the shape of a heart. Other books from the same period, uh, and here we have John Garth, uh, he's got a selection of Welsh books from Geoffrey Bash Smith, uh, one of his closest friends uh, and a member of the famous, infamous TCBS, the Society, uh, the, the Barovian Society, as they called themselves, that fired his imagination. And... Uh, Jeffrey Smith um, died. He was injured shortly after the Battle of the Somme. And he was one of the leading lights of this uh, society. Um, he collected Welsh. He was a great influence on Tolkien in terms of they discussed Welsh and what Welsh materials uh, and what Welsh stories were useful. Um, and 1916, he was killed and left Tolkien his Welsh books. The interesting, I've just given you one here. There are several of them. Uh, but gwaith is just a Welsh word meaning poetry. And this is modern Welsh poetry. And that's partly, I guess, why um, Tolkien was happy to pass it on. Um, the last couple are greatest hits. Uh, most of the, for those who know Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Saxonists, they're important within the context of his own chair. He acquired books which related to the Wilmington and the Bosworth chair. My favourite item, for those of you who know him, is VC 238. It's the first big article by uh, my predecessor, but two, Tolkien's successor, but two, but one, uh, Eric Stanley, a great man. Uh, he's just about to celebrate his 91st birthday. Uh, and in 1955, he wrote this wonderful, huge article, sent it to C.L. Wren, Tolkien's successor. Uh, and obviously, Wren passed it on to, uh, uh, to Tolkien. And Tolkien, rather wonderfully, in big capital letters, has written Stanley uh, in the front. Um, I'm not sure Eric knows this, but um, I shall certainly pass it on to him uh, when I find out. Other aspects of uh, Tolkien's life in Oxford we can deduce uh, from the books. Um, and the Celtic Library, as I say, uh, includes really far more than just Celtic. Lots of important Old English material. Um, lots of uh, Old Saxon, Faroese, Icelandic, Old English, Scots Gaelic, uh, Irish, Welsh, Breton. He was a linguist. This is what he was interested in. Um, and I should say in the presence of, 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 of a librarian that I... I there has been rumours that this uh, collection of the English Faculty Library, we're talking 280 volumes, it's not very much, uh, is going to be sent off to Swindon. And I think for a Celtic library, that's surely a fate worse than Neath. Um, I want to spend a bit of time uh, on his other activities outside uh, simply lecturing uh, and uh, reading uh, and producing books. Um, and I think we begin to come from full circle, like all rings for good or ill. And we saw, I think, in his lecturing... Again and again, year in, year out, his interest and devotion to all things uh, Old Norse. So uh, I want you now to imagine a young undergraduate at Exeter College, uh, Tolkien at Exeter, 
ransacking the library for books, not very many of them in Exeter College Library, I'm just saying, uh, that might appeal to his distinctly uncommon tastes. In particular, there's one very important two-volume set that fits the ticket beautifully, the so-called Corpus Poeticum Boreale, the poetic corpus of the North, first published here in Oxford in uh, 1883 by Guthrunder Vigfusson and F. York Powell, which contains all Old Norse poetry as it was then known, plus translations. A gold mine for a young mind. Presumably, he would have been delighted when a piece of paper flutters out, handwritten in actually a very dodgy form of Old Norse. In fact, the year is 1985, and in fact, that undergraduate was me. I had been recently incorporated into Oxford, very quaint expression, you get incorporated when you move from Cambridge or Durham or St Andrews, in fact, though people don't do it. You move from one university to another in the middle of your undergraduate career. I did two years in Anglo-Saxon, North and Celtic in Cambridge. Like Tolkien, I turned away from the classics. I got into Cambridge on a classics scholarship and I decided that I never wanted to do classics ever again. I turned to the dark side, or at least the dark ages. Um, my career was, I couldn't do, do it. I went to see my tutor, uh, a wonderful woman now, professor of French at Exeter University, uh, Naomi Siegel, and I said at the grand old age of uh, 20, 21, I said, I want to leave. I want to write books about medieval subjects. And she said, you want to change universities? And I said, can I? And she says, I don't know. But through that rather lengthy process, I fetched up at Exeter and uh, had the great fortune um, to go there. So, a riddle. What have I got in my pocket? <laughs> You'll guess that these pockets contain something very precious, uh, at least something precious to me. Um, you've got it on the back of your handout. But um, this is the original. That fell out of a copy of the Corpus Poeticum Boreale. And just for the, to be completely clear, when Francis Cairncross, the previous rector, came to uh, Toronto a couple of years ago, I hosted her when I was Provost of Trinity. And I fessed up and I said, I've, I've, I, this fell out of a book uh, back in 85. And I did go to the librarian. And it is perfectly possible that my thumb may have been over the bit saying C.S. Lewis, but that is the natural way to hold this. <laughs> and it was close enough to my birthday that let's think of it as a birthday present. <laughs> and I said, what do you want me to do with this? And she looked at it, and in the, the grand tradition of uh, Oxford College librarians, she said, it's in foreign. <laughs> Which is a perfectly perspicacious analysis of the situation as it stands. I said, I know, it's in Old Norse. And uh, she said, well, just keep it. So um, I did. It says, as you can clearly read, Skulu Atlet Colby to Saikia Heim, C.S. Lewis, Maria Magdalene Helki Bui, Odin's Day. Not Fenber, Tutugusti. Well, he probably couldn't do that bit, but Tutugusti. Klukan half near, a quote. And then his old Norse uh, sort of uh, departs him and he goes, Everything bit. You know, your bit is. Um, the proper word for bit would be um, sticky or clutty. Helga Kvita Hundingsbana, one to 
150 to 100. This excited my imagination then, and since, as now, I had no friends, uh, <laughs> I went to a universal almanac and discovered when November the 20th fell on Odin's Day, which is to say Wednesday. Um, and we know when Tolkien started the Coalbiters, he started them in 1926, just after, he, uh, after that year of commuting, when he really started the chair, he started it, and he started it in a very similar way to a, a Viking club that he'd had at Leeds with the wonderful Canadian scholar, uh, E.V. Gordon, who wrote the standard work on uh, Introduction to Old Norse. Tolkien founded the Kolbita, the Kolbiters, in the Hillary term, and he founded it for dons to read and learn Old Norse and Icelandic, Kolbita is an interesting term. It's usually described as someone who sits so close to the fire that it's as if they bite the coal. So much is true. But it has much greater signification. The Kolbita are the ones that everybody looks down on, that they, everybody thinks they're not doing anything, that everybody thinks will never achieve anything with their lives. And they surprise them. Grettir Ausmundersen, Egil Skatlagrimsson, these great heroes of Icelandic saga were known as Kolbiters uh, in their youth. It's also a bit of a, a, a misnomer to say um, that what we've got here is a collection of dons. I've given you on the handout a list of all the dons that I know to be coal biters. Now, I guess I should translate the Old Norse. It's possible that some of you uh, will not have uh, been to coal biters sufficiently reasonably to know it, but it says... Rather brilliantly, and I assume this is C.S. Lewis's handwriting, uh, and certainly the Lewis bit of C.S. Lewis looks remarkably like C.S. Lewis's handwriting, at least to me, but I'm happy to be contradicted. Uh, if anybody would claim it's Tolkien's handwriting, the value increases dramatically, but I don't think it is. Uh, <laughs> um, but it says, all the coal biters should, Soikya Haim is his, his, uh, his attempt at seek the home of, should visit. Um, I'm sure Tolkien would have taken him aside and said that in the sagas, in fact, Soikya Haim in the classic way of Icelandic sagas, those sagas about those, the Vikings, those shy, sensitive antique dealers who've been so sadly misunderstood. So Kjahem means to attack and probably burn. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's what Lewis intended. Should visit Lewis at uh, Magdalen College on Wednesday, November the 20th, which we can date to the year 1929. Now, 1929, November, is a key, key date for Tolkien scholars. Your bit is Helga Fiedel Hundingsmana 150 to 100. My first thought when I looked at this is that's a hell of a lot of Old Norse. 50 lines of, uh, of Eddic poetry is a lot. As you look at the history of the club, you'll see that these are not just any old dons. Brownholtz, the professor of comparative philology from Worcester. John Bryson, fellow of tutor Merton here, later Balliol. Neville Coghill, whose name I consistently spell wrong, it shouldn't have an E on the end. Fellow and tutor of Exeter College. Dawkins the first Bywater and Sotheby chair of Byzantine and medieval Greek. Dawkins was a linguistic genius. Everybody seems to agree on this. He was at least as good at Tolkien as Icelandic, people seem to agree. He was at Exeter College too. I'm going to pause there because for years I assumed that it was Coghill who was the recipient of this. Now I think it's almost certainly Dawkins on the grounds that 50 lines is a lot. And in the Colbiters, Tolkien had the position of honour. He led off every Colbiter session. And then Dawkins would take over, and then it would pass down the list. So I'm going to pin my hopes on Dawkins. John Fraser, the Jesus Professor of Celtic. George Gordon, who had been Tolkien's boss in Leeds. 
and then became Merton Professor of English Language and Literature uh, here, um, and then President of Magdalen College, and then Professor of Poetry, and then Vice Chancellor, and then pretty much every other job in the university. <laughs> Bruce McFarlane, Fellow of Tutor, Magdalen College. C.S. Lewis, I don't know what happened to him. Uh, C.T. Onions, editor of the, co-editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, and, and finally, um, Tolkien. What's interesting is that if we track this down, on the 3rd of December, this again is on your handout, Lewis writes to uh, Arthur Greaves, uh, and the, the full text is in this wonderful book, Walter Hooper's great book, They Stand Together, the letters of C.S. Lewis to Arthur Greaves. He says, I've got too many irons in the fire. That Michaelmas Club, the Linguistic Society, the Icelandic Society, and this and that. One week I was up till 2.30 on Monday, talking to the Anglo-Saxon Professor Tolkien, who came back with me to college from a society and sat discoursing of the gods and giants and Asgard for three hours, then departing in the wind and rain. Who could turn him out? For the fire was bright and the talk was good. Next night till one, talking to someone else. You've got to pity the someone else, right? <laughs> <laughs> and on Wednesday, Odin's day, till 12 with the Icelandics. It was very hard to keep one's feet in the sea of engagements and very bad for me spiritually. On the basis of this, I'm going to argue that this long chat that, uh, that uh, Lewis and Tolkien had one Monday night, and in the fantastic uh, Skull and Hammond, they give three possible dates. I think it's got to be the 18th of November, two days before this talk. How did it go? Well, I've given you the bit of Old Norse, and this is actually from the text. Uh, and you'll see for a start, you get the translation. Now, I could have given you lines 50 to 100 that Dawkins did, but I'm going to give you the bit that we know that, or we know, we assume that Tolkien did. Ár var aldar, that is árar bullu. Nýgu heili gvatn af hinnim fullum, þá hafti helgin hugum stóra, borghilda borið í brá lundi. I can't give you Tolkien's translation, but um, I'll give you mine. And this wonderful, uh, this, re this penguin, I'm just selling a book now. This penguin classic, uh, The Elder Edda, where somebody's put a stamp on it saying, classics that inspired J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, which led my mother to be terribly proud of me for about five seconds. <laughs> he didn't have my translation. <laughs> it was early in ages when eagles screamed, holy streams poured down from heaven fells. At that time, Helgi, the mighty-hearted, was born to Borkild in Braulund. It was night in the homestead, the Norns came, those who would shape fate for that noble. They said he'd become the most famed of warlords and be thought the best of princelings. They braided strongly the strands of fate, shook up the stronghold in Braulunt. They arranged the golden threads and fixed them in the middle under the hall of the moon. Tolkien much? This is the kind of material that they were reading on that night. This is the kind of material that Tolkien would then be expanded on. And I'm sure that Tolkien would have suggested that the opening line is very clearly a copy of an earlier line of Eddic poetry uh, which um, begins in the same way. It's the beginning of the world. It was early in ages when Emil made his home. There was neither sand nor sea nor cooling waves, no earth to be found nor heaven above, a gulf beguiling, nor grass anywhere. Why did Tolkien spend so much of his time reading pagan poetry? reading poetry about the far past. I think we go back to Beowulf. Beowulf begins by talking about, we've heard of these tales of long ago, of far away, of a foreign people, of a different people who believe different things from us. That's essentially the triple distancing mechanism that Tolkien is using in his own material. It's different in time, it's different in space, it's different in place, and they're different people. 
He talks at one point in his Beowulf lectures and in his Beowulf books about how the Danes, the poor Danes, um, when Grendel attacks them, they worship the tabernacles of, of idols. And in particular, he focuses on some lines which to him don't sound right. Wabitham the shal for sleed na need, soul a bishoven and fear as fathom, throat for no enan, wichte yuendan, well bitham the moat after death they are dricht and searching unto Father Fatman, Freyoda William. The largest amounts of notes that were in Tolkien's copy of Clayborne and have now been collected separately are about the one word sleeth, thur sleeth na need. And he points out that it doesn't occur anywhere else in Old English poetry except here and in a poem by Canulf. And he suggests, and I think his ear is pretty good. I think he's probably right. The special use this is Tolkien. So Sleed Naneeth in Beowulf in line 184 to describe the malice of idolaters that lead to their damnation is certainly illuminated by a note of Wildhagen's, which of course he translates this very obscure German notes. All the more so since it occurs in a passage which seems clearly to be an addition or an elaboration by a later, less intelligent, more polemic poet anxious to underline the paganism of the Danes and the hopeless state of the pagans. We might conclude with the words that the, the Yattish people concluded with as they celebrated uh, their hero, uh, Beowulf, after he died. Swabagnoradan yerta leoda, flowers rura herdinertas, querda matiwera, world kininga, mana mildest on monthweras, leodum leadest on lofiernost. Thus bemoaned, Bemourned the Attish folk, their master's fall, comrades of his hearth, crying that he was ever of the kings of the earth, of men the most generous, to men the most gracious, to his people the most tender, for praise most eager. It's only that last word that jars the Tolkien context. Happily, Tolkien was happy to rewrite Old English poetry, so allow me. I change that last word in a Tolkien connection from lofjernost, most eager for praise, to lifjernost, most eager to celebrate what's good about life. Thank you.